The information provided in this show is intended for your general knowledge only and is not intended to be, nor is it, medical advice or a substitute for medical advice. If you have or suspect you have a specific medical condition or disease, please consult your health care provider. Now listening to the Health Hero Show with Tim James. <laughs> What's up, Health Heroes? Tim James here, founder of ChemicalFreeBody.com and your host for the show that simplifies and demystifies how to live an energetic life with a flat belly. So if you're into a healthy gut and staying young, then this is the show for you. Hello, Health Heroes. This is Tim James. I wanted to do a short introduction today uh, for our guest because this episode is so the timing is so critical. Um, this was a big opportunity for us to get on Senator and Dr. Scott Jensen onto the podcast to address some concerns and get some information out to you and to me. I was, I was just soaking some stuff up like a sponge and I can't wait to get the information out to you guys. So um, this guy is awesome. He is uh, just a good, decent, hardworking human being. 2016, he got uh, Doctor of the Year Award for Family Physicians in the entire state of Minnesota. That's a huge honor. He was very, very humble. He's like, oh, it wasn't me. It was my team. And I was just part of it. I mean, the guy is just so humble and awesome. And he's a straight shooter. And I love that. But today, this episode is really important because health heroes, our medical freedoms are at risk, are at risk. And COVID has shown the light on this more than ever. So what we've got here is we have a doctor who's an acting senator that basically didn't like what he heard. And so, or what he was told to do as far as how he was supposed to fill out death certificates in regards to COVID. So he challenged that because it didn't make sense to him. It wasn't, it wasn't right. It wasn't the right thing to do. And he has a conscience. Um, the other thing was, is he um, actually just stated some facts um, about COVID related to the flu. And all of a sudden the medical board has put him under investigation and he doesn't know who did it or what, but he's under investigation on a couple of counts right now and he's very frustrated. And his whole message is, and this is why he's got over 4 million YouTube views and um, is being interviewed all over the place right now, um, news channels, podcasts, radio shows, um, is because of him speaking the truth and standing up for his um, moral um, obligation as a human being and as a doctor trying to help people and do the right thing. So medical freedoms, so important today. I can't stress it enough. And we're going to get into some really cool stuff today. Um, but I just want you guys to think about this. Like in the, in the state of California right now, they're, they're pushing like vaccinations and stuff like that. And if you don't have your children vaccinated, you can't go to school, right? And these, these types of things are written into laws and are becoming laws. And eventually if you, you know, where it's headed is if you don't have a vaccine, then you can't go to a public space, like, you know, maybe watch your son or your daughter play a basketball game or play soccer or something like that, because you don't have your little card that's stamped. So this is the stuff that really scares me and, and it worries me that if you don't have X, whether it's a vaccine or a pill or whatever, then you can't be a human being and live on this planet. If you actually just pause for a moment and think about how ludicrous this is, where, you know, human beings have been on this planet for tens of thousands of years and animals and species, 4 billion years old, this planet, the planet's done just fine, just fine. And people have evolved just fine without these types of, you know, basically without some synthetic a drug going in them, right? We've, we've done fine. Uh, we have things called natural herd immunity. We have um, parts of the immune system called the interferon system that are going to help 
us to, they, they want viruses and bacteria to come into us, okay? So that they can be, it can become stronger, okay? With resistance becomes, becomes strength. Our interference system um, is part of the immune system, but it's not talked about, you know? Um, the, the, the system that we have right now is the adaptive system and the innate system. These are the, the immune system components. It's a hundred year old system. Dr. Shiva Ayyaduri did a keynote speech like eight months ago when he was asked to speak at the most like prestigious, you know, uh, deal ever with scientists and doctors about the new model of the immune system. And he talked about the interferon system, not just the innate and the adaptive. And he also talked about the gut bacteria system and the brain system. So there's actually five systems, if you wanna compartmentalize them, five boxes, not just two, right? So there's new science and th things are being proven all the time, you know? Like it's like we talked about uh, scurvy as an example. I don't know if I talked about it on this podcast or other ones, but um, it's a vitamin C deficiency. It's not like it's a disease that's gonna come get everybody. It was a vitamin C deficiency and everybody knows that. But at the time people were freaked out and they're scared they're gonna die. Well, it's just, you need some vitamin C, okay? And you're gonna find out today that vitamin C is one of the most powerful antiviral um, things that you could do, whether it's COVID or pneumonia or a cold, flu or whatever, just basic colds or you know these other corona strains that are out there. It's like five, six, seven corona strains that are already out there. So there's tons of natural approaches. We'll get into that today. We're also gonna get into some synthetic pharmaceutical approaches that are working and they're working very good. Old drugs that have been around for 25 years, 65 years that when coupled with zinc are able to stop COVID in its tracks and get hundred percent success rate with all these doctors that are out there using it in their clinical practice and helping 40 people, 50 people, up to 350 people. I've heard doctors talking and speaking out of what's working in their practices um, with things like hydroxychloroquine and zinc, or they're using budicidine and zinc. We're going to get into that today. And we want to help you guys know about this stuff so you can share these links and get the real news of what you need to do so you can lower your fear, boost your immune system, and then not to have to worry. But if you have like an elderly grandma or something like that, or your mom or whatever, then you know there's things that you can do. And what Dr. Jensen gets into today also is really cool because he gets he's talking about losing some weight and, and building up the immune system today. And why wait, right? Why wait? Let's get that immune system boosted. That health heroes is what the conversation needs to be. Today, it's about boosting the immune system, not fear, 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 and wait for a pharmaceutical, um, you know, uh, a drug, a vaccine to come to save the day because it's not going to come. And I'm very concerned about this uh, because, you know, typically like the vaccines, they take a lot of money and a lot of time to go through this stuff. I mean, you're talking five years and like five billion or five billion dollars in like 13 to 15 years. And they're going to try to rush this deal. They're skipping over animal trials. So usually what they do is they start in a Petri dish. And if that kind of works, then they go to, um, you know, to animals and 80% of them fail with animals. And the 20% that's left then go to phase one clinical trials, which is small batches of humans and phase two, bigger batches and phase three, you know, more people. But think about that. 80% of those drugs don't even make it out of uh, the animal testing. And we're skipping over animal testing and we're rushing a drug. We don't know what the side effects are going to be long term. We don't know. We don't even know what's in the drug. And that's the scary thing because I can tell you as being in the supplement industry, there's a lot of things that are in supplements that aren't even on the labels. 
Okay. So what do you think's happening in the vaccines? We really don't know what they're going to put in there. So my thing is I'm going to err on the side of caution. I'm going to build up my immune system and I'm going to look to things like we're going to share with you today. Again, natural modalities to heal pharmaceutical drugs that are old, tried and tested and true with no very little side effects. I mean, there are some, but they're working. Okay. They're working fantastically with partner with zinc and then you know, some other things for acute. We're going to get into all this today. So I hope you really enjoy Senator and Dr. Scott Jensen in this episode and realize that your medical freedoms are at stake. And the best thing that you can do to protect them is to not only listen to this, take notes and protect yourself, share this with your friends and family, but share the, share the podcast, get this information out to people. It's critical timing. It's critical timing with an upcoming election. They are going to do everything they can to shove this vaccine down our throats. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's pretty scary, but we don't have to buy into it. We don't have to buy into the fear. We can just get back to nature, get back to ourselves, and understand that we heal ourselves. Hope you enjoyed the episode. What's up, Health Heroes? Tim James here with another exciting episode of the Health Heroes Show. Today I'm with uh, Senator, Acting Senator of Minnesota and doctor, Dr. Scott Jensen, very excited today to talk to you about our medical freedoms and most importantly, protecting our medical freedoms, not only on a, from a public side, but we also have to protect our physicians. And this is really important. Dr. Jensen, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, so I saw you, um, I saw your YouTube video that's got like over 4 million views and I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, wow, this guy, reminds me of a lot of the people back home that are just decent, hardworking folks. You seem like you're cut from a good cloth. Uh, there's probably not a, you know, a bad bone in you. You look like a straight shooter all the way through. Um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background, um, you know, and um, how you became a doctor and all that stuff, and then we'll get into kind of what you're facing today. I'd be glad to. Thanks. Yeah, I actually grew up in a small town called Sleepy Eye in southern Minnesota, about 4,000 people, and I was a middle child of five. Uh, I had a wonderful family growing up. Uh, my dad was my hero, and my mom was my best friend, and my older sister taught me that uh, if someone's bigger and stronger than you, you better not pick on them because you're going to come out losing on that one. Mm -hmm. uh, I graduated from Sleepy Eye High School and went to the University of Minnesota, planning on being an orthodontist. I was able to get into dental school, and I was president of my class, but I had a rude awakening in that I found I just wasn't in love with teeth. So I did the logical thing. I went to the seminary for a year. And during that year, I made two big decisions. One is I asked my girlfriend if she would marry me. And we've now been married 42 years. And I also decided to try to get into med school. Congratulations. Thank you. And I tried to get into med school. And I was able to get into medical school. So I went into med school and got that done in three years. And then went and did a three-year residency in family practice. And I've been practicing medicine in Watertown, Minnesota for 35 years. I was on the school board in the local school district for 10 years, and I thought that was enough politics for me. But about five years ago, um, the good Lord came knocking at my door through a lot of folks, and uh, I was recruited to run for Senate. And with some misgivings, I decided to do it. And the campaign ended up being very successful. And I've had quite a remarkable four years in the Senate. It started off on the first month with Governor Mark Dayton of Minnesota having a, a collapse during his State of the State address. And I was called on to uh, lead the revival effort to bring him from unconsciousness back into uh, uh, fully aware and make certain that he didn't have a stroke or a heart attack or a seizure. 
and uh, he did well. And I went on to have, I think, a, a pretty active Senate term. I carried some big legislation on trying to create an insulin safety net program for diabetics. And I also carried a, a far-reaching pharmacy benefit manager bill, licensing pharmacy benefit managers and bringing a little bit more transparency to the way they do business. And then on April 3rd this year, I received an email from the Minnesota Department of Health indicating uh, some new advice regarding how to complete death certificates in the wake of COVID-19. And this advice didn't sit well with me because it conflicted with the way I'd been doing death certificates for the last 35 years. So I raised a ruckus and I was on a news program with Chris Berg on Channel 4 on April 7th and a day or two later with Laura Ingram on Fox, Fox News nationally. And ultimately that caused enough of a problem with some folks that I was accused of disseminating and spreading misinformation. And so the Board of Medical Practice notified me they're investigating me and were looking at whether or not my license needed to be adjusted or whatever. And I was also being accused of spreading reckless advice because I was willing to compare COVID-19 to influenza. Now, my view was COVID-19 is comparable to influenza in many ways. And it makes no sense to try to compare COVID-19 to, if you will, shingles or mono or syphilis because these aren't comparable. So I think just as Dr. Fauci and many other epidemiologists and leaders across the country compare COVID-19 to influenza, I did too. But I found myself in hot water and it appeared to be politically motivated. And honestly, I think that at, at many levels, it, it seemed like the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice was being weaponized and used as a tool to sort of muzzle me and make my life miserable so that I might shut up. But it didn't work because I don't really care a lot about politics. It isn't something that I strive to be. I don't want to be a politician. I'm a family doc. But if I'm going to serve in politics, I'm going to do the best I can. And I'm going to be as honest and transparent as I can. And I'm going to make mistakes just like everybody does. But you're not going to be able to muzzle me just because you're being sort of mean-spirited. It's not going to happen. Yeah, so, you know, they actually, I kind of read what they had said against you they said you were actually deceiving and defrauding the public that was the actual words in in, in that letter and um all you did was you compared you said hey 50 million people are going to get the flu this year and you know how come we're not shutting down the you know how come we're not shutting down the, the world because of that i mean that's a that's a fair comparison you know at the time with the numbers with covid and even now we look at the numbers today um where they're at and, and, you know, cause I want to get into this death certificate thing too, because this is important. Cause I, I, you know, I've got some people coming on my show that are frontline nurses working at like Elmhurst hospital and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> learning a lot of things about how COVID was spread. Like they had co a floor for only COVID patients, but then they were taking people instead of doing the, uh, what was it? The, the 48 hour test. They were doing the test. It takes five to seven days to get back. And while they were waiting on those test results, they were putting those people on the same floor with the COVID patients, right? And the nurses were telling me that the, the personal protection equipment, the PPEs were not being used properly. And they had the nurses and doctors were just spreading it all around. So you got that going on. Now you're saying that the death certificates 
let's let's get into that. What exactly? How do you do a death certificate normally? Have you been doing it for years? And um, um, have you is is your hospital ever been paid to identify any type of other death? And then now, what are they telling you to do with COVID? And does your hospital get paid to identify a COVID death? So there's three pieces I think you're asking about. The first one is commingling potential COVID-19 patients with confirmed COVID-19 cases. The second question is, let's talk about the completion of death certificates. And the third question is, well, are there any perverse financial incentives that have been created along the way that could potentially skew uh, the way we accumulate data? And that data frequently has been used to inform public policy decisions. So I'll start with the first. In regards to COVID-19, we have made mistakes across the land in regards to commingling people with confirmed COVID-19 with potential COVID-19 patients and some situations where people didn't have any likelihood for COVID-19, specifically in a lot of the long-term care facilities. We simply weren't adequately prepared. Shame on us. We need to learn about that and do it better. And I think that there were some states, and I think New York State has to own it, that they could have done a much better job in terms of trying to sequester, if you will, active COVID-19 patients from potential ones. And I think one of the things that could have been done was long-term care facilities could have been better supported. Moving on to the next question in regards to the completion of death certificates. The CDC and the Department of Health have generally leaned into a precise or as precise as you can be sequence of causation, starting with the initiating event and then leading through the various steps that may have led to a patient's death or demise. Let me just give a quick example. If Tim, if you have a heart attack in March, and unfortunately for you, you have a big enough heart attack that a fair amount of your heart muscle has been killed so that it's no longer effectively contracting, pushing blood out to the tissues of your body. And so that within the first 30 days, you develop a secondary complication called congestive heart failure which leads to increasing shortness of breath. And you come to see me and we talk about this and I tell you, there's really nothing we can do in terms of transplanting because you're not a candidate for whatever reason. And we've maxed out the benefit we can get you from medications and stents aren't going to help you. And we watch and we walk through things and you say, you know what, rather than spend the next 60 days of my life running around going to doctors, visits and taking pills that make me sicker. I'm just going to take whatever time I have left and try to enjoy my family. And I want to focus on supportive comfort care with an emphasis on my dignity and my autonomy. Yes. And we'd say, okay, then say that in those next several weeks, as you continued to progress and death became closer and closer to you, that you found that you had a COVID-19 test that was positive. Perhaps you were tested because you thought that you'd had a taste or a smell disturbance. And in that situation, you went on to die within a few days. The question would be, what did you die of? I would say that you did not die of COVID-19. I would say that the initiating event was the heart attack. The second, and that led to congestive heart failure, which led to shortness of breath, which led to potentially being immunocompromised, 
right. which led to COVID-19. But the underlying cause of death is the all-important cause of death. That's the one that we tabulate data on. That's the one where we come out and we tell Americans, there are 650,000 Americans die every year of heart disease. There are 600,000 Americans die every year of cancer. There are 50,000 Americans that die every year of suicide. And the underlying cause of death should not be so corrupted by our appetite for diagnosing COVID-19 that we would put COVID-19 down because the fact of the matter was, Tim, you had died of a heart attack and we need to be clear on that. So that's how I think we were getting corruption of the normal processes and the normal conventions in determining cause of death by the CDC and by many departments of health. And that was why in my response to the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice, I shared with them numerous states that had to subtract 200 COVID-19 deaths from their count in Pennsylvania, 100 and some in Colorado. Kentucky did the same. Texas did the same. And there was New York with Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio saying, well, we had 3,700 more deaths in this time interval than we normally expect. And so they must have been COVID-19 deaths. And instead of, if you will, <clears throat> staying tuned into a precise pattern, they just took 3,700 people, moved them into their death count in one fell swoop. So one day their COVID-19 death count was 7,000. The next day it was 10,700 which is exactly the problem. Because a few weeks later, we saw their US congressman jockeying for a bigger share of dollars being allocated by the federal government. Because they said, gee whiz, we were having so much COVID-19 death, we should get more of the dollars than Minnesota because they've had so few. This is exactly what we knew would happen. When dollars and healthcare intersect, there's gonna be some clumsy, awkward discussions. Hey, side note, what do you think about Cuomo taking like, what was it, 3,500? You just reminded me, like people that were diagnosed with COVID, tested positive, and putting them in the nursing homes. That was the real problem. And he needs what to the be hell is he? What the hell is he thinking? And didn't this happened in a few other states too. I mean, these people are morons. Like 1% like of the population, I think they average COVID deaths around 78 years old or 76 or something like that. It's up there, right? 50% yes. of the COVID deaths are that niche, which means 1% of the population is responsible for half of all COVID deaths. And then you take the people that are already tested positive and you throw them in the nursing homes where most of those people reside that are already immunocompromised. What do you think should happen to this guy? It's funny you brought that up. I spent some time yesterday talking with a colleague physician who spends a lot of time taking care of hospice patients. And as, just as I have, he has served as medical directors in nursing homes. And we talked about this. And in Minnesota, we had the same problem. And in Minnesota, we were nation leading for a while because 80% of our COVID-19 deaths were in people in long-term care facilities, which was a huge mistake. And, and, the, and then as if that wasn't bad enough, we told all these fragile, elderly, vulnerable folks, that not only was the facility they're living in infested with COVID-19, they would be called on to die alone because we weren't going to let them have visitors. And this will be a dark blotch on the way we handled this pandemic for decades to come to what we did to our vulnerable elderly population when not only did we 
give them direct access to COVID-19. We told them they're going to be dying alone. Yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible. I mean, I had a client here in town that uh, mom's 88. She wasn't feeling good. And I said, hey, look, you take her to the hospital. You can't go in. They're not going to allow you to see her. She's got dementia. She's going to freak out. She's not going to know where she's at. She keeps forgetting things. And um, she has a high probability she's going to pick up something there. That's what's going to happen. And Tim, you had asked the third question too, and I wanted to make sure I wrap that up. Yeah. And I think you had asked about reimbursements for COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. So if somebody, yeah. If, yeah, if, somebody gets, if somebody dies and they get marked as a COVID-19 death, how much does the hospital get? I heard it was like let's, 13 grand. Let's step back from that just a moment. Hospitals are generally paid, generally paid for Medicare patients a lump sum amount. So if a Medicare patient is admitted to a hospital for shortness of breath and ultimately diagnosed with a pneumonia or a respiratory infection, their lump sum amount will be about $5,000, depending upon what part of the nation you are in and how, what level of expenditures you have. Some places are more expensive. It's certainly more expensive to receive healthcare in Manhattan, New York, than it is to receive it in Mankato, Minnesota. So you'll see some variances in that regard. But as a general rule, $5,000 for a typical respiratory infection garden variety. The government puts some enhancements in place for Medicare patients. And if it's identified as a COVID-19 respiratory infection, then the $5,000 becomes $13,000. And if during the hospitalization, a ventilator is used, for that patient, then the reimbursement becomes approximately $39,000. Now this information, when I shared it, because I received this information from a multitude of hospital administrators who were concerned about the potential for abuse. When I shared this, I had physicians screaming at me from states across the union. And so the USA Today did a fact check on me and they came back and I'm sure they would have perhaps liked to have come back with a different outcome, but they came back and they had talked to hospital administrators around the country, to doctors, and they came back and said, yeah, the doctor from Minnesota is telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to get into more of, I really want to talk about, take a moment to talk about ventilators. And um, we'll get into some more stuff. We'll be right back with Dr. Scott Jensen. This is Pat Militaire, former UFC champion and UFC Hall of Famer. My life is hectic. I did a show, finished at midnight in Minnesota, drove four hours north to Fargo, North Dakota this weekend. Three hours later, ran a marathon, taught a seminar that afternoon, got up the next day, ran a little bit more to loosen my legs up, taught another seminar, and then drove home last night for eight and a half hours. Got back home at, at two something in the morning. This stuff is what's saving me right now, and it's keeping me going. So imagine what it can do for you, just a nine to fiver. To get this product and our other amazing products, go to chemicalfreebody.com. That's chemicalfreebody.com. Okay, Health Heroes, we're back with Dr. Scott Jensen, also Senator of Minnesota, Acting Senator, District 47. Um, we were just talking about um, uh, ventilators. And you said that, you know, if somebody gets um, a, a COVID-19 diagnosis, 
then the hospital gets $13,000, correct? Correct. And then if they're put on a ventilator, they get 39,000. Now, is that in addition to the 13 or is that total? Total. So it's total. So identified as COVID and on a ventilator, they get $39,000. Perfect. I'm glad that you're here to clear that up because there's been some misconception. I've been sharing different numbers. Um, that's awesome. Now, my question is, is that when you get COVID, isn't it, it's a respiratory infection, right? And your alveoli get filled with fluid. And then what I've read and what I've seen, and I've talked to multiple people, doctors included, that are in the know, um, that when you put somebody on a respirator, that's high pressure in that area and you explode their lungs, you got about an 88% chance that the ventilator is going to kill them. What's your take on that, about ventilators and COVID? I think we need to be fair. And I think it's, un it's important to understand that anytime someone is put on a ventilator, regardless of COVID, just take over the last five or 10 years, whether it was for adult respiratory distress syndrome, whether it was for uh, severe bronchospastic disease, emphysema, uh, congestive heart failure, whatever it might be, this is a serious intervention. In many centers, approximately 40 to 50% would never come off that ventilator. They would die without ever being able to breathe independently again. Now, what we learned in this situation, initially we didn't know a lot about COVID-19, and the thought was that this is an alveolar damage process, but we know now that it's more than that. There's also an inflammatory component to the vessels that cause, if you will, a microscopic vasculitis. And with that, a lot of micro blood clots can form. So it's not just an alveolar issue. But when our focus was more on alveolar, the thought was that a ventilator might help open up some of those alveolar sacs that were collapsing or unwilling to open. And that was not an unreasonable conclusion. But what we found, especially in New York, and I think physicians around the country have rallied to try to teach one another how to best deal with COVID-19 pulmonary disease, especially when it was severe enough that it required in intensive care unit status. What happened was we were finding that 80% of patients were dying on the ventilators and that simply raising the pressure by which we were forcing air into the lungs didn't seem to be doing as much as we'd expected or hoped. And so ventilator use has now dropped off substantially. Continuous low flow oxygen or even moderate to high flow oxygen seems to help more people. We're learning along the way. It's a fluid situation. I said very early on when we were having this whole panic about not having enough ventilators, I said, when we're done with this, we are going to see ventilators on pallets that are never unwrapped, purchased at top dollar by states and hospitals all over the country because we were literally in a panic mode. We were playing whack-a-mole. We were bebopping whatever we could, and we were making hasty and rash decisions. In Minnesota, our governor bought a building and is refurbishing it and paid $7 million to store the bodies because the model he was using called for almost 1,000 deaths per day in Minnesota. And we haven't had a number of deaths in Minnesota in double digits since before July 4th. In the whole month of July, we had a few hundred deaths. We have only 1,600 deaths in the entire pandemic. 
and we were being told we weren't going to be able to handle the body count. And so we needed to have great big warehouse, morgue warehouses where we'd store the bodies. This is, this is not logical thought. It's fear mongering. And the, and the mainstream media is picking up and they're running with it. And they're, they're like yelling at the white house and saying, you know, you're not, you know, geez, you're not, we need more masks. We need ventilators. Where's the ventilators? Where are the ventilators? And then there they are. Then the doctors are coming out. I don't have the timeline here, but I remember I was, I've been covering this the whole time. And it's like, the ventilators are not working. That's coming out. There's reports, stuff. But then the mainstream media is like ventilator, ventilator, ventilator. They don't stop. And it seems to me like all they want to do is push up the death count to scare everybody into a forced vaccine. That's what I, I'm seeing very clearly. It's like, heaven forbid we focus on building the immune system and clean water and clean food and clean air and all that stuff vitamin A, vitamin D3, getting out and getting sunshine, being around people to boost your immune system, zinc to stop the replication, um, and the high dose vitamin C IVs when somebody has, you know, a, a acute respiratory infection, whether it's pneumonia or the flu, or how many hospitals, does your hospital do that? Do you guys do vitamin C IVs? I no longer actively take care of patients in the hospital. We have a team of hospitalists that do that. So I couldn't speak to that. When I last took care of patients in the hospital, I, did, I was not aware of any protocols for intravenous vitamin C therapy. Yeah, and to me, I'm like, why, why aren't we using that? It's like, remember scurvy, right? They're like, oh, it's a disease. Well, no, it was just a vitamin D deficiency that the, the sailors were getting. In fact, the British sailors, for those of you listening, they were called limeys because they were eating limes and lemons, and that was keeping them to get their vitamin C on the long trips. But eventually, the super long trips, the lemons and limes went rotten. So then they started using chickpeas or garbanzo beans because they could store them for longer trips and avoid to get the vitamin C out of those to avoid scurvy. So again, when people are compromised, I'm just hoping that this whole COVID thing is going to wake people up to like how uh, deficient our, our, our immune systems are in this country. I mean, over 80% of people are overweight and obese. And then we've got um, you know, all these diseases, like you just said, 650,000 people dying of heart disease, which is like a toothless tiger. We, we know what causes that and cancer is a chemicals. And it's just, to me, this whole thing's insane because it's all leading towards um, a vaccine. And I'm, I'm just, I believe in it with all my heart because even if the medical doctors don't understand natural healing using foods and high dose whole food vitamins, you know, like if somebody gets sick, putting them on 500,000 international units of vitamin A, 50,000 international units of vitamin D, give them some zinc. And then if they're acute, 100 grams of, uh, you know, tapioca based uh, vitamin C IV and do that until they're well. I know that would work. I know that would work because I know people that are doing it. But we have people now with hydroxychloroquine and zinc, right? Um, and uh, they're healing people. Doctors are healing people left and right with COVID. And they're also using budesonide that, that inhaled steroid with zinc. And I've got data here that shows that um, uh, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore, an estimated 151 million people as of July 13th only had 1,015 deaths. And they're using a, a similar um, inhaled steroid as bunicidide as Dr. Richard Bartlett was using in Texas, um, which right now is a generic, a generic pharmaceutical uh, inhaled steroids, $200 cash and you're done, or your insurance might even cover it. So with bunicidide out there, with the death counts of Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore being 151 million and only a, a thousand deaths using an inhaled steroid and zinc, and, and now with hydroxychloroquine, all these doctors coming out with zinc and using it, no adverse effects. 
why, why, aren't, why are we even not back to work? How come every hospital is not equipped with hydroxychloroquine and zinc and budesonide and zinc? At least they can use their own pharmaceutical drugs if they don't want to go you know, natural. What's going on with all that? Again, I think it's a fluid situation. I've had a conversation with Dr. Bartlett. I've served on some teleconference, uh, medical committees with him. I think that initially we were looking at COVID-19 as a disease that maybe 40 to 50% of the population would get and not even know they had it, asymptomatic, if you will. And we're looking at another 40 to 50% of the population that if they got COVID-19, they would skate through it relatively easily. And then we would have this other group that for whatever reason, struggled mightily with it. And so it was sort of, you got through it or you didn't. And I remember a couple of experts, perhaps, not as expert as they thought they were, contacted me and said, well, doc, we're going to end up with 20% of COVID-19 uh, sufferers uh, being hospitalized. And I said, no, I don't think it's going to be 20%. And if you actually look at it right now, it's, it's closer to 6%, I think. But about half in Minnesota, about half of our patients that are admitted to the hospital will be admitted to the ICU. And so what evolved over a fairly short time frame was that Patients that were diagnosed with COVID-19 were either so sick that they needed to be hospitalized or they weren't. And if they weren't, nothing was done. And if they were, they were hospitalized. And we were seeing the hospitals take the lead on the convalescent serum investigations, the hydroxychloroquine investigations, the dexamethasone, the bidesonide, the combination of azithromycin with hydroxychloroquine. But this was all being done pretty much in the hospitals. But unfortunately, we are having a lot of people, if you will, at home with COVID-19, and they were forced to, for those who were symptomatic, either get over it or not. If they got over it, they got over it. If they didn't, they got sicker. And when they got sick enough to be hospitalized, then they were in truly harm's way, and that's where things sat. What you're suggesting is, isn't there something we can do for that group of people, which is not an insignificant amount of people, that get the disease, it's recognizable, they have symptoms of fever, cough, shortness of breath, and potentially other second-tier symptoms as well. But what could we do to step in there so that they don't have to sit on their hands wondering and waiting, am I going to get over this without any assistance, or am I going to continue to get sicker and sicker so that I land in the hospital and then my life is at risk? And if in those situations, we were taking a more aggressive response, saying, what about vitamins, zinc, azithromycin, hydroxychloroquine, budesonide, dexamethasone? And this is where I think we maybe weren't aggressive or ambitious enough. And now what we're seeing happen is we're seeing politicians, bureaucrats, and academics leading the way, telling patients and physicians, we're not going to let you use those things. In Minnesota, yesterday, Tim, It's, it's, in, it's Walls, insane. It's insane. I, I, it, it's yesterday, like, uh, in Minnesota, Governor Walls put out another executive order and basically told the Board of Pharmacy that if physicians were writing hydroxychloroquine without an approved diagnosis, that it shouldn't be filled. So now clearly we've had a fracture between the patient-physician relationship. If the patient wants to try this therapy, the therapy that the president of the country decided he wanted to try, they are not allowed to because the politicians are saying, we're running the show. 
We may not have MDs behind our name, but by George, we're going to stop this nonsense. And this is where we're at. And this is the whole point of why I wanted to have you on. It's a guys, it's a, for those of you listening, it's about our medical freedoms. The government is getting in between you and your doctor. And I mean, that's protected by HIPAA laws or so many things that nobody needs to know anything about your medical information, but you and your doctor of your choosing. And what's happening is it's, it's hilarious to me because you have, you know, you have politicians and I look at them and most of them aren't healthy because I can tell by their skin tone. And that's what I do for a living is I help coach people on their health. And, and then they look to these so-called experts to give them medical advice, doctors and stuff like yourself. But um, then they're circumventing that whole system. Well, our experts are telling us to do this. That's why we're doing all these things. Now they're just saying, we're doing all these things to hell with the doctors. We don't, we're just making our own call here. And they don't even know what they're doing. It's like they're not producing results. When you have, it blows my mind when you have all these doctors out there saying like, I'm healing people 100% cure rate with COVID-19 using hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and the zithromycin, then how come that doesn't just instantly decimate it out to everybody else? It's working and it's working. I'm not just, there's multiple people. I've talked to multiple doctors before those, you know, the bunch got up on the, on the, the steps of the, of the, where was it at? Um, the courthouse or, or I don't know. Supreme court. Yeah. The Supreme court building there. So I just think that our medical freedoms are at stake right here and we got to protect our docs. We got to protect ourselves and we need to, you know, not allow this to happen. So what do we do to stop this? Well, Tim, I think we also need to remember that depending upon the physician and the specialty, whether you're talking family practice or endocrinology or internal medicine, cardiology, 25 to 40 percent of physicians prescribing is likely to be off-label. So for a physician to write hydroxychloroquine for malaria prophylaxis because a patient is traveling to a country where there's malaria, that would potentially be susceptible to hydroxychloroquine. We, we, we can do that, absolutely. But we've used it off-label. Off if you look at quinine and what we do, I mean, I can't tell you how many patients I tell that have nocturnal muscle cramps to drink two or three ounces of tonic water before they go to bed because the quinine in the tonic water will calm the muscles from synapsing like they do. But what we're seeing here is truly a paradigm shift. We're seeing politicians teaming with bureaucrats and many times academic so-called experts in telling us that we can't do these things. Hydroxychloroquine has been identified for 65 years as quite a safe drug. In many ways, it may be safer than some of the drugs we use when we're overly ambitious about treating cholesterol. We don't treat cholesterol naturally. We put them on this drug, this drug, and then, oh, by the way, if this huge dose of statin doesn't take care of your cholesterol, and oh, by the way, too bad that it causes muscle aches that make it so you can't exercise, then we add another new agent, an agent that hasn't been studied nearly as much as hydroxychloroquine. So we're really, we're playing with fire here. Patients should be able to have relationships with their physicians, have discussions, and as long as people understand what they're getting into. It's the same thing we do when we take someone to surgery. Should we be taking an 83-year-old to surgery to do a clean-out on their carotid vessels? If we have last a like six months, I mean. If we have a 7% stroke rate in the office and the patient and the doctor choose to do it, we're not having the governor of Minnesota say, we're not going to let you do a clean-out procedure on the carotids. 
politicians have got to back off. They're not as smart. They're not as equipped to make some of these, these, these decisions that they're making. And I appreciate your willingness to get out there and talk to public, talk to patients and say, hey, you know, this is my perspective. Because right now, if you don't abide by the conventional narrative and you have the audacity to be a skeptic and to introduce or to support the consideration of a contrarian narrative, you have the potential to be blackballed or targeted through your board of medical practice. And that's why I went public a few weeks ago, was to make sure that the public knew that this was happening. And I thought it was more important that the public participate in a transparent, diagno a transparent dialogue than having me suffer silently, quietly, feeling shame because I was supposedly guilty of spreading misinformation and providing reckless advice. And I'm so glad I did it the way I did it because quite honestly, millions and millions of Americans and people around the globe participated and said, this is just plain damn wrong. Yes. And you should not feel any shame in your one ounce of shame in your bones. You should feel very proud for what you did because you're basically standing up for what's right. And that's why you did it. Right. So, and it seems like you're very welcome and everything, whatever the news is telling you guys, if you're listening the mainstream media, usually it's the exact opposite of what reality is. So if they're bad mouthing somebody as a stand up person as, as Dr. Jensen here, um, you know, they're just trying to, he's not fitting their narrative. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense when you have a guy who's, I mean, you won like a medical, like you were the family physician of the year. What year was that? What, 2016. And it's one of the highest honors I've ever received. And I was so grateful. For the whole and state, it really right? Wasn't, yeah, it was. But it really wasn't about me. It was about my patients. It was about our staff. It was about the whole team. Uh, and I was fortunate to have my name on the award. But it, it was a real gratifying award to receive. And to be a few years later targeted because I provided information. You know, really what I try to do more than anything, Tim, is I'm not an expert virologist, but I take care of viral illnesses every day. And I'm not an epidemiologist, but I've studied epidemiology. But what I can do as an in-the-trenches family doc and a senator involved with public policy, I can help people connect the dots and I can provide context. You mentioned earlier, you know, flu epidemics and our present COVID-19 epidemic. Well, if I tell you that we've had 150,000 people die of COVID-19 in this country, but half of them were in long-term care facilities, you're sitting there thinking, okay, we got 75,000 people that were in the mainstream dying and 75,000 people in long-term care facilities. But then if I also tell you that in 2018, we had 80,000 people die of influenza. And then if I tell you that in 19 18, we had 750,000 people die of influenza. These kinds of contextual parameters help people understand, and they don't have to get so overwrought with fear. When we drive people crazy with fear, they're less likely to think for themselves. They're less likely to think enough of themselves to still champion their own health care. And that's where it gets dangerous, because quite frankly, nobody's going to do as good a job of taking care of themselves as themselves. And that's what I tell patients over and over again. I am not the chief. I am not the champion. You are. I'm here to be a resource. And I will tell you that this is one approach and this is another approach. But at the end of the day, we need physicians to be a resource to patients so they can feel empowered to be the decision makers for their own health. 
Awesome. Awesome. Hey, I know you're, I got so many more questions for you, but I know you got to bounce quick. Let's say that you get a diagnose with COVID-19 and you're, you have a granddaughter. I do. Your granddaughter gets it. And is your mom still alive? She's not. Let's say she is. You love your mom, right? Okay. Your mom, yourself, and your granddaughter gets COVID-19. What would you do? Well, my granddaughter, I wouldn't worry about it a bit. She's going to fly through it if she even knows she has it. Right. For me, I'm going to go with uh, vitamin C, D, zinc, and I'm going to try to keep myself as healthy as possible. And if I start getting any kind of respiratory wheezing or shortness of breath, I'm going to go on budesonide uh, using an inhaler because we've been using steroid inhalers for asthmatics and bronchospastic disorders for a long time. And Dr. Bartlett's uh, instructions regarding budesonide is not some earth-shaking advice that should cause him to be targeted by anybody. But for my mom, for my mom, I would say, mom, you're in your 80s. You're susceptible. We need you to self-quarantine. We will do everything we can to support you through this. And if she wasn't vulnerable and she had no comorbidities, I would tell her just use common sense but if she was vulnerable, I'd say self-quarantine. And I would tell her the rest of the world that isn't as vulnerable, we need to keep all of the processes in place. We need to maintain the supply chains for food products and pharmaceuticals and all these kinds of things. So we're not going to lock down. We're gonna to continue to try to keep an economy going. And we want you mom to do what you need to do because you're vulnerable. And she, you do the same thing, right? Vitamin A, vitamin C, zinc, you'd be having to do all that. And we should be doing this now, Tim. We have anyway. a lot of patients that have not gotten COVID-19, but may well still be susceptible. And right now, go out and lose five to 10 pounds. Start vitamin therapy, start zinc, start magnesium, start being at peace, do some meditation. We know the immune system works better when you're not fraught with anxiety. There's things you can do right now today. Start today. There's no reason to wait until you find out that you were exposed to someone with COVID-19. And one last thing before I sign off, Tim, in regards to herd immunity. Herd immunity is the way we've generally gotten through pandemics for hundreds of years. The notion that we might have a successful discovery of a vaccine is just that. It's a notion. It has to be safe, efficacious. Is it going to be something that we could use in one-month-olds all the way to 100-year-olds? We don't know that. We can hope and pray for that. But the bottom line is herd immunity is an established fact. And in achieving herd immunity, we'll do it through exposure. We'll do it through T-cell immunity, antibody immunity. And we may well do it through if you will, disease resistance, because there's probably a natural disease resistance present in many of us. We need to remember that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't understand that the whole 100-year-old view, mm -hmm. medical view of the immune system has been on the adaptive and the innate Bifuron system, which is saying that our body wants to be exposed to viruses so it can get stronger. Without that resistance, we build up, we become a thousand times stronger every time we get exposed to this stuff. So our body actually wants to be exposed. Do you agree? I don't know if it wants to be, but it needs to be. It's, it's the way we've survived through millennia after millennia. Bottom line is, there's, there's this, this is not any news, but we know that when you have kindergartners start when they're five years old, if they've been pretty closely sequestered at home, 
they're going to probably have more school absence in that first kindergarten and first grade year than that other group of kids that have been out and about in the playgrounds, in the daycares and all that, because they will have already had their immune system introduced to many of these common viruses that come around every year. And I think it's important for people to remember, if they're not aware, that coronaviruses is not new. We have six or seven coronaviruses circulating through our society already. And many coronavirus diseases are indeed very much like the common cold. And we have many kids start kindergarten who have had a lot of exposure to rhinoviruses, coronaviruses, influenza viruses, because they've been in the mix. Their immune systems have been stimulated, has been exposed. Their T cells and B cells have learned how to respond to these things. This is the way the world works. And this is the way our immune system chooses to keep us alive. Absolutely. Well, Senator and Dr. Scott Jensen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I know you have to bounce. Otherwise, I'd talk to you for five hours, brother. Um, how, do you, people, how do people get in touch with you if they want to reach out? Probably the best way to do this, is Senator Scott Jensen, Facebook access, and then they can send a uh, Facebook message. Okay. And then they can find you on YouTube. You have those videos on YouTube. Just look up Dr. Scott Jensen, S-C-O-T-T-J-E-N-S-O-N, correct? S-E-N. S-E-N. Sorry about that. J-E-N-S-E-N. Okay. Dr. Scott Jensen or Senator Scott Jensen of Minnesota. Again, thank you, brother, for coming on. And remember, guys, change yourself, change your world, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Have a great day. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening again to The Health Hero Show. I'm your host, Tim James. And remember, change yourself, change your world, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Talk to you soon. You have just listened to The Health Hero Show with Tim James.